This is episode 46 of the Immunology Podcast, Allergies and the Immune System with Dr. Caroline Sokol. Hey everyone, this is Dr. Jason Goldsmith and Dr. Brenda Rout. Welcome back to the Immunology Podcast, where we have conversations with immunologists. The Immunology Podcast is brought to you by Stem Cell Technologies, a global biotechnology company supporting life science research and fostering communication and collaboration in science. If you enjoy the Immunology Podcast, rate us and leave us a review. We're always looking for feedback on how the podcast can be improved and for suggestions on guests. Today, we have Dr. Caroline Sokol from Massachusetts General Hospital and Harvard Medical School on the podcast to talk about her research on the mechanisms behind the innate immune control of allergic disease. We've also got our usual roundups of recent highlights in immunology news coming up. But first, let's talk about Immunology 2023, which is the annual conference of the American Association of Immunologists and is taking place this year in Washington, D.C. from May 11th to May 15th. And you can already make your hotel reservations before April 17. They have a selected hotels that are working together with the AAI. And you can take advantage of special rates for attendees. You can visit www.immunology2023.org for more information. And Jason and I are going to be there this year. Are you excited, Jason? I am. And I'm so excited I'll finally meet you in person after our failed attempt last year. I know. That was such a, such a shame. It but terrible. it was great. It was great seeing you through the through the door. Yeah, I, we uh, opened the door. I, I I took a ten foot pole and handed you some food on the end of it. <laughs> Maybe some of the listeners might have seen some of the pictures of you hanging out with Dalen and Arun from our sister podcast, the Stemfield Podcast. Very having a great time, and me joining from my hotel room because I had Corona and I had to isolate in Vancouver. You that got was the great. day after you landed. You had a wonderful experience in a Vancouver hotel room. Yes, it was. Yeah. Yeah. All 15 square meters of it. Was but someone beautiful. brought you pastries. You did. That was so kind. But yeah, so I'm very excited about AAI. I'm very excited about going to Washington. And uh, yeah, to talk about it with the attendees. And we're going to have a booth at the Exeter Hall. Isn't that exciting? It is very exciting. And then we'll be conducting interviews with attendees. And, um, you know, just checking the whole thing out. Yep. It's very exciting. So, I mean, if you want to meet with us, hang out with us at the booth, please join us. We're going to have so much fun talking to everyone and you know, checking the latest research. And, um, yeah, it's going to be going to be very exciting. So we're looking forward to see you all there. We'll get immunologized. Is that <laughs> yes. That's our word. I'm not so sure. But, you know, let's talk about real words in actual papers. What did you bring this week? First, uh, roundup of the year, I have to say, with a lot to choose from. All right. I'll start with this one. Um, this will not surprise anyone that I picked it. It's the person-to-person -person transmission light landscape of the gut and oral microbiomes. First author is Morella Vallis Colmar. Last author is Nicola Segata. It was put out in Nature. and on January 18th. So uh, this made the rounds of the gut microbiome world pretty quickly. They took old data and combined it with new data from multiple company countries, as well as like villages in Africa, and looked at how the microbiome transmits or is linked between populate between those populations. So you have a village, and then we had information on family members who cohabitated 
people who didn't cohabitate the same village, people who were related to each other or not related to each other cohabitating, right? So you had parent, you had sibling, you had uh, people who just lived together, you had people in the same village, and you had people in the same country, and then you have people in the world. And they're trying to look at how these microbiomes transmit. They've done some of this work with 16S sequencing before, but this was a whole genome sequencing approach. And so it gave better data that could get very strain specific, which 16S sequencing can't do if you just do the ribosome. And they found some, and then they did it both on oral and fecal microbiota. So they find that, that you know, the strongest transmissions are from mommy to baby early in life, which includes cohabitating and genetics, and then and tapers off over time. Um, what you're seeded with depends on vaginal versus cesarean birth, which we know, but the the, the transmission still then occurs, and then the cohabitation still drives things afterwards, as pl presumably plus genetics. Cohabitating seemed to be as much of a driver or more driver than genetics, and then the time of the age of the kid also really mattered. So you see this drop off at three years, and then moving on um, for fecal. Interestingly, for oral, the older you get with people you cohabitate, the more you share. That being said, uh, they they see that you know regions have closer proximity and microbiome, and the further out you go, the less you have. But they do find that some species are just known to be, are even if they're not common, are better at transmission. They actually don't tend to be pathogenic ones, but then they find certain markers that, you know, and certain features of bacteria that suggest that some bacteria transmit transmitters as well. So even if you have different populations and you see these repeat patterns of very specific species across the world that are known transmitters, and, and some populations may not have much of a bug, so you don't see as much of it, but generally speaking, certain bugs are just better at transmitting and different bugs are better at fecal or oral transmission in terms of, you know, that, that microbiome population. Um, but mommy baby is a big one. Who you live with is another one. And then age is a determinant when in your cohabitation relationship. Um, but cohabitation is the big driver, basically. So sharing is caring, folks, and includes your microbiota. Nice. I mean, am I surprised about this? Not really. I guess it's interesting that they found a way to, like, get data on this information it feels like it must have been quite hard to I think some data. of the, the impact of the paper is how they were able to realign the sequences from existing tests and add other stuff in with genome sequencing so there's a lot of mm -hmm. that and data modeling in here and then mm -hmm. they added the saliva data on in some cases and they they just went down to the strain we know we knew that you know general bacteria would be there but like the fact that it, it is the same strain of that bacteria transmitting that they hadn't established. And so okay. is it the same type of population or is it the same bug? And the answer is down to the bug level. It is that clone. Okay. Okay. That was really neat to see. Nice. I wonder like if they, because I noticed that they have among some data from Argentina, for example, and they have, um, I wonder if the, the societies that usually greet people with like a kiss in the cheek also have higher, uh, transmission. Did, I, I, they didn't, I don't think they found a ton of that. Um, they actually found that where you lived or the like cleanliness factor, right. Or the hygiene mm. hypothesis, it affected your diversity, but not your transmission rate. They saw okay. similar transmission rates 
for the same cohort, like parent to kid or living right. together. Yeah. Everywhere they looked, what bugs in the diversity index in those populations would change, but that species level transmission did not, which is kind of neat. Okay. Very interesting. Yeah. So, as you said, it's good to share. You're also a microbiota with the people around you. Share the joy. <laughs> All right. So, I'm going to bring a story which I think is very cool. It's not a huge paper. But it is a paper that was literally 10 years in the making for all the good reasons. Uh, so I thought it was, it had a little bit of traction in, in social media because it's such a fun thing to say, these guys kept this experiment running for 10 years of prog uh, progressive mouse uh, generations of mice and cells. So let me walk you through this paper's uh, titled Functional T-cells are capable of supernumerary cell division and longevity. Uh, it was published in Nature. First author, Andrew uh, Sorens, but I'm pretty sure other, uh, other, the other authors were also very important. And this is from the lab of David Masopust at the University of Minnesota, who uh, is, a, is a very well-known name in, in T-cell biology. And what they basically did is they showed that the longevity and the capacity of T cells to proliferate is does not have a limit that we actually can identify, and that cells can outlive their original mouse uh, donors by several fold. So there's this idea we always we always wonder. So T cells, we know they can proliferate very much. They're designed to do this. We know that they have programs of memory that in a way prepare them for long uh, long time of, of inactivity while they're waiting to be reactivated in case of a second exposure. And we know that, yeah, it's very important for T cells to be able to survive at least a large proportion of the animal's um, lifespan because then that's how they can protect it from the 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 pathogens they are they are specific against and in vitro when you culture t cells and you activate them we know that there's usually there's a limit of how many divisions how much time you can actually keep these cells in culture and to keep them uh, alive often at some point it's not really clear but it has always been kind of assumed that there is a limit to how many cell divisions a, a t cell and its progeny can actually take so there was this idea called the Hayflick limit in which there's a suspected maximum of possible cell divisions, I don't know, 60, 50, uh, between, before which, until which the cells reach some kind of senescence and they are unable to keep proliferating. And it's not clear what this would be. Would it be because of shortening telomeres? Would it be because there's some accumulation of DNA mutations? Um, we also know that in vivo cells that are chronically stimulated, for example, in the case of chronic viral infections, they do come up, undergo some kind of progressive exhaustion. And the question always is, and this is very important also in the context of therapy, can, is this exhaustion inevitable? Can we, can we expand cells in vitro, uh, or, or is there, so can we expand cells for, for how long can cells actually sustain a population? And are there any experimental conditions in which we can keep the cells alive? So what they did in this paper is they took, they started 
over 10 years ago with uh, black six mice uh, labeled with a CD45.1 uh, congenic marker. And they vaccinated these mice with three uh, different uh, 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 three different uh, immunological um, uh, activators of vaccines in a way, or they with three different events. They uh, that that include a VSV, a VSV virus, either different strains of VSV virus. They had three different, uh, either a strain or a uh, a nuclear protein. Um, uh, immunizations. They had three different immunizations with 60 days in between them. And then they ended up with a population of cells that were they that they could pick up with a tetramer that was containing the a peptide of a immunodominant peptide from VSV. So basically they generated a memory population in this mice. So what they did is they took from this from these cells using this tetramer, they selected out of these mice uh cells that are specific against this particular tetramer, uh, uh, this particular peptide, and they transferred the cells to congenic, uh, so to other mice, new, fresh, young mice that had a different congenic marker. So CD45.2, the, the way they could differentiate the introduced from the endogenous cells of the host. Uh, and again, they uh, proceeded again to, to uh, immunize the mice three times with, very, with uh, three different types of VSV, strains and again they collected the cells they reintroduced a new mice and they kept kept doing this for 10 years for a total of 51 cumulative immunization and they just kept going they could keep recovering cells from each generation of mice the cells did not show any signs of stopping proliferation they did not stop uh, activating upon uh, co-culture with with uh, the the target uh, antigen, they still um, they still had telomeres of of a constant length, and they they just could keep them going for all this time, which suggests that there was not a particular l- limit of how many divisions the cell population could actually undergo because they could always keep keep finding them in the mice. Uh, they did have different, some particular phenotypical markers that kind of showed that these cells were not the same as the endogenous naive cells from the mice or even the first couple of generations of memory cells. They had a high expression of markers that are usually associated with senescence or with terminal differentiation, such as KLRG1. Uh, a lack of CD61L, which are often used to describe these cells. And they did have accumulation of what are known as, kind of usually mentioned as uh, exhaustion markers, such as PD-1, TIM-3, TOX. But this did not seem to prevent the cells from proliferating and surviving all this long. Uh, When they looked into production of cytokines uh, and compared two very different generations, or either the third the generation after the third uh, stimulation or the one after the 33rd or the, or the 51st, so many generations later, cells could still uh, uh, respond to a, for example, um, Listeria infection with a VSV antigen, and they could still produce interferon gamma and TNF. So 
this was a very cool experiment that showed that there doesn't seem to be an upper limit under the right conditions. T cells can just keep on going. And so they make this, this calculation that uh, a single initial T cell from the first mouse would be giving a rise to 10 to the power of 41 cells uh, after the, the last immunization, about 50, I think it was 55 immunizations. And when that they calculated that, we, that would be 30,000 times the volume of earth of cells worth uh, of proliferated cells. So I think it was a funny, funny way of putting it. Uh, but it shows that whatever limits we see in T cells proliferating are a consequence in a way of the environment or the experimental conditions in which we observe these cells, because they don't seem to have this limit in an intrinsic way. So yeah, 10 years. 10 years of keeping this mice alive. That sounds like the world's longest postdoc project. <laughs> I really hope it was at least two or three postdocs that got, that uh, did this. Can you imagine I, uh, getting your paper out for a decade? Yeah, yeah, well, wouldn't be the first ones, but... That's really cool. That is very cool. That's a commitment to a cause. That is scientific commitment there. I want to say, this. then this shows that T-cells are limitless. Sounds cancerous to me, though. Well, they're not transformed. That's also important. They they're not they well, they're not like proliferating. Well, the fact that they can do that means yeah. that you definitely have to have the environment just hanging on because the telomeres ain't going to do it. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. So they they can't keep their telomeres by themselves. They don't need. They don't. They don't suffer from that. So what do you got now? Well, I have no segue to this one because. Even I can't bridge this gap. Um, <laughs> but I have a paper called An Epithelial Cell-Derived Metabolite Tunes Immunoglobulin A Secretion by Gut-Resident Plasma Cells. Um, first author is Simona Seglia. Last author is Andrea Riboldi. Uh, it is in Nature Immunology, and it was uh, published 19th of January, 2023. And interestingly, it was received March 4th, 22, and accepted December 14th. So that's a pretty long nine-month mm -hmm. around. So this gets acronym-heavy really quick, so I'm going to try to not do that for all of our sakes. So IgA secreted by mucosal surfaces is the dominant form of IgG, or immunoglobulin in the intestine, secreted by plasma cells. Um, which are in the lamina propria. And they had, and I, I, they don't really explain in this paper why they went down this path. I bet you they had preliminary data or studying other things that led to them this. But they found that a cholesterol metabolite known as 7-alpha-25-dihydroxycholesterol, um, which is an oxysterol, and that oxysterol is a ligand for the chemoattractant receptor GPR183. All right. That cholesterol is responsible for attracting and driving secretion of IgA in plasma cells in the gut. So this links dietary cholesterol and hemoral immune response. 
So how do they do this? They have a couple of tricks. One is tissue-specific knockouts and reporters. Another thing they use is they use very selective cholesterol medications that are on the market for people. So one is ezetimbi, which inhibits cholesterol absorption in the gut. So that's going to affect your exposure, your, your gut's ability to signal through dietary cholesterol. And the other are your statins, statins your Lipitor, your Torvastatin, that type of thing that blocks cholesterol synthesis. And so they can see, is this based on endogenous cholesterol synthesis related signaling, or is it based on dietary through selective use of these drugs? And so what they do is they, 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 they sculpt out the pathway and show that a mighty 88 knockout that's not sensing bacteria does not have the ability that does not properly respond to this cholesterol to begin with. So they kind of start and jump immediately in on that. So they show, first off, if you get rid, if you alter the diet or knock out the receptor, you have hypersecretion when there's less cholesterol sensing. So less cholesterol sensing means more secretion of IgAs. So that's the first thing when you when you just kind of do that at that point. Um, they also isolate this to the duodenum being where this work is occurring because that it, they, they home it there, which makes sense. That's a high cholesterol bile acid area that's occurring there. So they show that. Then they go in and use a mighty 88 knockout and show that the genes involved in this process are reduced in mighty 88 knockout mice, which means that at least microbial signaling is driving basal induction of the pathway, which is not that surprising. It's microbiota and alter metabolism, generally speaking. So they show that this is all based on sensing of this cholesterol dietary-wise. It's not based on synth synthesized autocrine function, right? So it's not your body synthesizing the cholesterol and then releasing it and causing this. And then they fig isolate it to the IEC compartment using knockouts. They isolate it to the duodenum, showing it's IEC metabolism that's acting on plasma cells. And then they then go through and show that there's a CD98 blimp axis that's relating to secretion and that these, the ability, the secretion machinery is turned down by higher or turned up by higher and higher cholesterol or by, by lack of cholesterol sensing. So if you, lose, if you knock out the ability to sense cholesterol, you get more secretion. So cholesterol inhibits secretion, or cholesterol metabolites. And then they show that homing, um, so interestingly, the metabolite causes honing to the gut, but then inhibits IgA secretion, restrains it. So it says, come here, but don't give us too much IgA. If it's already there and you do a deletion, like an inducible deletion, once it's already there so you don't screw up homing, then you get the effect where you, you, if you knock it out, you have too much secretion when you sense it or from the ligand, from the receptor that senses this cholesterol ligand. So that's most of it, right? So this cholesterol ligand, and, and then, oh, by the way, if you have, uh, and then they did a salmonella challenge. And if you, block, if you block the pathway, you have more salmonella IgA. And so the inhibition of cholesterol uptake by ACs, 
enhanced antigen-specific IgA secretion. And then they did in vivo study and showed that if you block these cholesterols as well to enhance that IgA secretion, you have less systemic salmonella dissemination. So basically, cholesterol blocks IgA secretion but causes your plasma cells to home to your gut. There you go. Would that be like a maladaptive response? Is there any advantage of... Well, you need the cholesterol to get there, right? So so you need, sorry, you need the cholesterol to get the plasma cells there. So that's not maladaptive. Hmm. Then it's holding down secretion. I mean, you have to think about the fact that salmonella is probably adapted to hijack the machinery. It's not the other way around, right? Like just because mm-hmm. you can block salmonella better by having more IgA secretion maybe you don't want more IgA secretion net overall because it'll cause mm-hmm. a general dysbiosis which prones you to other diseases like do you want all oh, the IgA okay. binding to your intestinal tract into your bacteria maybe not actually okay that that would make sense right okay. that, that may be like too much IgA and then you get you know inflammatory bowel disease or something just as a hypothesis right like it's not necessarily more is not always better yeah yeah Man, another way what we eat influences our immune responses. <laughs> such, yep. such kind of direct. Sometimes they, I, when there are these stories, it's so direct the effect. Oh yeah, and they and they map it out. It's so it's the epithelial cells absorb the cholesterol, shoot it out as chylomicrons, and the chylomicrons mm-hmm. go to the plasma cells. If you block that machinery, it doesn't work either. Yeah. But then it only works so for this absorbed cholesterol. You said Correct. not like Correct. regular cholesterol circulating uh, in the in the in the blood. Yep. Okay. Nice. Well, another thing to keep in mind, keep your cholesterol in intake in check if you want IgA in your gut. All right. So, last story of today. Uh this paper, I guess it is a couple of weeks old, but I really like the story, so I wanted to share with you. Um so I hope you'll forgive me for that. This is uh, called gamma delta gamma delta T cells are effectors of immunotherapy in cancer with HLA class one defects. And I thought really cool. Published in Nature on the 11th of January. And first authors uh, shared authorship between Natasha de Fries, Joris van der Haar, uh, Vivian Veninga, and Miriam Halabi. And this is from the labs of Noel de Miranda, the University of Leiden here in the Netherlands, and Emil Vus, which uh, uh, works at the Netherlands Cancer Institute. Disclaimer, that was my former workplace, so I know these people. I'm very happy to talk about this because I've heard this story before. Um, so basically, what's the take-home message here? They had access to really cool data uh, from some clinical trials, some seriously nice clinical trials going on in the Institute uh, in which they tested checkpoint inhibition uh, for colon cancer um, uh, patients. And they had this amazing response uh, really for the uh, um, uh, the uh, MMR, so mismatch repair deficient cancers, uh, respond uh, really, really well to checkpoint inhibition, PD-1 uh, blockage, um, to a point that it was like, very surprising, uh, but what was really surprising is that in this in this uh, in this um, data set, they see that 
many of the patients that responded, actually 20 of 21 patients uh, that had a genomic inactivation of beta-2M, which is important for MHC class one uh, presentation, um, were also responding to checkpoint inhibition, which on the on a first thought seems a little bit counterintuitive because if you think that checkpoint inhibition is usually directed at uh, cytotoxic T cells and T cell responses, which are the ones that are expressing oh, large amounts of PD-1 in the in the tumors, um, it feels strange because how would this response be possible if CD8s cannot see the tumors because they're not a presenting antigen on MHC class one. So they they start digging a little bit deeper on this on this question, and they see they saw there was an association between beta two M inactivation and increased infiltration by another type of T cell, which are namely gamma delta T cells in this mismatch mismatch repair uh, deficient cancers. And interestingly, we, we know that there are several there's some subsets of of gamma delta T cells depending on their uh, Delta chains, um, and they could see that there were particularly two subsets of of gamma delta T cells: these uh, uh, V delta one and V delta three, which are often described as tumor uh, infiltrating, uh, sorry, as uh, tissue infiltrating uh, that were PD one positive, so they would be responding. They would have the the the, the ligand to to be. Uh, um, um, acted upon by the checkpoint inhibition, and they see that this this uh, this gamma delta T cells were present in these tumors, and and they were increased upon checkpoint inhibition therapy. Um, interestingly, again, there was this beta, uh, V delta one and V delta three uh, in contrast to the more mostly um, described V delta two, which are mostly found in blood. Um, and they see that these subpopulations are, as I said, expressing PD-1. And so, as I said, 20 of the 21 patients that had beta-2M mutation responded to treatment with uh, PD-1 blocking antibodies, and and they had high amounts of these cells. And uh, they show, using very nice models uh, of, of uh, the culturing uh, tumoral cell lines uh, from derived from patients and making organoids with uh, knockout, knocked out beta-2M, they show that these gamma delta T cells are capable of uh, responding to this uh, mismatch repair deficient uh, cancers and that they can uh, induce uh, tumor cell killing uh, by, by themselves. And that this recognition of the tumors uh, is mediated by a, a receptor that is also has been described in, in many of the other um, innate uh, lymphocytes, such as uh, NK, uh, um, namely NKG2D, and that this receptor was very was key for the recognition of the gamma delta T cells of these uh, MHC class one deficient tumors, and that when they look back into the samples from patients, that this uh, they see infiltration of gamma delta T cells in the tumors, and they see that this this amount of gamma delta T cells increases upon checkpoint inhibition. So I thought it was a really cool story because it shows that on the one hand, you now when you get this, the results were really interesting to start with for these tumors. And then the fact that it was so counterintuitive that you have 
mammary structural deficient tumors responding to what is usually considered a T alpha alpha beta centric T cell therapy. And you actually have the gamma delta T cells that come to the rescue and uh, seem to be responsible for a large part of these very, sometimes very uh, impressive responses from these uh, mismatch repair deficient tumors that have a lot of mutations uh, such uh, as beta, beta 2M um, deficiencies. And so this is really interesting. The, 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 the initial finding is the most interesting part, right? Like the yeah. people with the deficiency were able to do some work anyway. What do you do with this though? Uh, as someone who's in the immunotherapy field? Well, I guess that you've already know that your patient is beta 2M deficient. And if you see, if you can identify, uh, so they see that they, they identify markers of, of gamma delta presence in these tumors. So you can already expect that these patients might actually respond very well, even if they're beta 2M uh, knockout or mutated, that they can still respond to the therapy. So it makes sense to treat them anyway. So you do that first step, but then do a second measure. Yeah, because often it's common now for these patients to get like uh, exome sequencing and stuff like that from their from their tumor. So they kind of know already which, which uh, if they find, uh, they can already identify which genes are mutated, like beta-2M, or, or they can see it on um, staining or things like that. So what was an exclusion criteria will no longer be an exclusion criteria? I mean, thankfully, it wasn't an exclusion criteria for these patients that were treated. They were all treated with with a checkpoint inhibition, with anti-PD-1, right? Um, so yeah. I think, yeah, it's not a reason not to treat them. There you go. All right. Well, we've talked lots about papers first of the year. And, uh, you know, we have, we have an allergy talk coming up here with Dr. Caroline Sokol at Mass General and Harvard Medical School. But before we get to that, um, well, you know, we've talked a lot about some T cells. If you need to isolate human regulatory T cells, stem cell technology has created a step-by-step -step video showing you how to isolate them from large volume samples using easy step technology. The video goes over each step in detail. To watch the video, go to stemcell.com slash Treg isolation video. For our first guest of the year, we are talking to uh, Caroline Sokol. She's assistant professor at Harvard Medical School, and her labs uh, is uh, working on understanding mechanisms behind the innate immune control of allergic disease. And I think it's really interesting because we don't talk enough about allergic disease in this podcast, I think. And she has some very interesting stories about, for example, how uh, how allergy can be mediated by neurons or by members of the of the neuronal family. So I'm very excited to hear more about her research. Uh, Professor Sokol, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for being here. All right, I'll, I'll jump first. When I think allergy at a super basic level, and I'm deliberately being probably more basic than I would normally think, I think, oh, you have antibodies to something you shouldn't. And so you have a, you know, a hypersensitivity reaction and that's all nothing to do with innate immunity. But then when I think about people dying of an allergic response, it's anaphylaxis. And last I looked, antibodies don't move that fast. So that has to be innate and you study the innate. So can you, can you bring that to the front and talk about like the fundamental underpinnings of innate 
allergy and maybe even tie it to what everyone thinks of when that person walks by with a peanut allergy and falls over dead because there's peanuts in the room. Right, right. So, I mean, first of all, the allergic immune response is something that is kind of mysterious to a lot of people. So if it seems fuzzy to you, then you are kind of right on target. Um, but what it really is, is it's a whole complex of different types of responses, right? So it's not even just peanut allergy or antibodies, right? It's T cell responses against things like poison ivy um, in the US or, or, other, um, or other plants and animals out there and, and chemicals. So it can involve antibodies, it can involve T cells, it can involve a whole lot of things, okay? Um, but when it involves antibodies, we generally think about IgE antibodies, and we think about those IgE antibodies binding to mast cells and basophils. And when they get activated because of cross-linking of those IgE antibodies, we think of those mast cells and basophils as just spewing out these mediators that cause hives and all kinds of horrible reactions that we all know and dislike, right? Um, and on the far end of the spectrum, that can lead to anaphylaxis. Um, and it's a really interesting thing that you even mentioned, gosh, antibodies don't really move that fast. And certainly antibodies bound to mast cells and basophils don't um, move that fast. So how does anaphylaxis uh, um, fit into this? How does a whole body allergic reaction fit into this? I think it's something we should totally come back to because I think that that is one really interesting area of type 2 immunity that we have no idea about. And me being um, a neuroimmunologist or taking a neuroimmunology um, approach to type 2 immunity, I would argue that that is really the final outcome of the parasympathetic nervous system getting activated somehow and leading to bad whole body effects. Um, but in general, kind of like all of these things that we're talking about, these are all the final outcomes of an allergic immune response. What I'm really interested in is how this gets started in the first place, right? Because um, like, it makes sense that you would want to have an alert, um, not allergic immune response, but it makes sense you would want to have an immune response, right? Against bacteria, against viruses. These are baddies, they infect us, they make us sick, right? Um, but, but peanut doesn't make us sick, right? Pollen doesn't make us sick. So why in the world do we have responses against these things? Why do a quarter of us have responses against these things? Um, and how does the immune system kind of recognize them as being problems? And that, that right there is the fundamental question that I've been interested in studying since I was a grad student. Um, and I still study now. Yeah, on that topic, I think we here in this podcast, we often talk a lot about one well, of the dendritic cells and, and their role in initiating immune responses. And somehow we mostly gravitate around CDC1s because we're talking about cancer and things like that. Uh, so he, I, I assume this is going to be a little bit of a, a highlight of the other subset, which, as I understand, is very heavily involved in initiating uh, immune allergic responses, so CDC2s. Um, so maybe I guess that's where this conversation is going in that sense. How do these, why do I understand these cells as being responsible for initiating allergy, allergic responses? Um, and how do they do this? 
Right. So dendritic cells are those kind of master sensors, right? And just like, as you said, CDC ones are really good at detecting intracellular pathogens. Um, CDC twos, um, as a subset, they're actually a heterogeneous subset, right? Because they include both dendritic cells that are going to be targeting extracellular um, like bacteria, fungi, things like that to induce a TH17 response. But they also include a different subset that is really specifically involved in inducing TH2 differentiation and the allergic immune response. Um, now the TH17 inducing CDC2s and the TH1 inducing CDC1s, they both get directly activated by TLRs, pattern recognition receptors, all this kind of um, things. But the TH2 skewing dendritic cells, these CDC2s, um, although we've known for like 10 years, the exact, at least in the skin, the exact dendritic cell that is necessary for TH2 differentiation, we haven't known how they get activated by um, allergens or how that leads to specifically skewing of TH2 cells. And so when I started my group back in 2018, that was really the question that we wanted to ask. How are these dendritic cells getting activated by allergens? Because if you um, expose the skin to an allergen, they get activated, they migrate to the draining lymph node, they, they do their thing, they do their job. But if you take those same DCs out, you put them in a dish and you put allergen on them, nothing happens, absolutely nothing happens. Now, part of that story, um, you know, through work done in the early 2010s really um, seems to be the role of alarmants. So things like IL-33, TSLP, IL-25, these are important um, cytokines um, that are released when there's some sort of damage or danger in the environment. And these certainly do play a role in TH2 differentiation, but what we found is that they didn't necessarily explain dendritic cell migration and activation on that first exposure to an allergen. So that was really what we were interested in finding out was how were those dendritic cells getting that signal? How were they sensing allergens? allergens. Um, and what we found when we were doing this was that it might not actually be the dendritic cells directly, right? Because if the dendritic cells aren't getting activated with a really strong allergen in a dish, then they probably don't have the machinery on their surface to directly sense it. So our big question was, what is that sensor if it's not the dendritic cell? And so we moved to look for something, some other cell type, because I like to think of cells interacting together. So that was my bias. So we were looking for a different cell type that might be involved in all of this and might be involved in the initial sensing of allergens. So it was around this time um, when we were trying to figure this out that there were two things that happened to, um, to me and to us in the lab um, that kind of impacted um, how we address this. Um, so the first thing was, was my three-year-old um, at the time got his first bee sting. Now I'm a clinical allergist and I know that Anybody that has been stung by a bee or a wasp is bound to have IgE. These venoms are the strongest, most robust allergens that you can possibly have. And for some reason, when I was outside with Will and he got his bee sting, I realized, oh my goodness, he just got his first allergen exposure. And immediately he was painful and itchy at the sight of the um, bee sting. 
And that kind of hit me at that moment that this was not immune recognition at this stage, right? That he was actually having a sensory response and he was his sensory neurons were being activated somehow directly by this venom. I mean, this is stuff that like neurobiologists have known for ages, but it was new to me. It was this new thought to me. Um, so that was interesting. And thinking about how sensory neurons might be able to directly detect allergens um, had me thinking about um, sensory responses in the lab. And at the same time, um, we started um, switching how we were anesthetizing our animals in the lab. Um, and we switched from kind of a long-term um, anesthesia to just a short-term inhaled anesthesia for them. So they were waking up right away. And we noticed um, when we were, right after we injected um, the mice with our allergen, that they would wake up, they'd walk around and they'd just start chewing at the site of injection. They were annoyed by it. Um, and it, you know, it only lasted a little bit and they were fine. But all of a sudden that kind of put together for us in the lab that, gosh, you know, maybe we've been looking at the wrong cells. Maybe it's not the immune system that is the initial detector of um, allergens and allergic activity. Maybe it might be sensory neurons. And so that led us to look for sensory neurons in this whole pathway and to look at how sensory neurons might be interacting with these CDC2s that induce um, TH2 differentiation. And so, well, what, what did you find? I have to say, just before you continue, for a moment, I thought, you would say, I took my son and I had to go to the lab to make some blood tests on him right away <laughs> to see what was going on. No, no, I did not. <laughs> I did not do that. Although I wanted uh, to. I, I wanted to. And what I did do is I took a picture of it. I took a picture of a sting and now I use it in lectures and in talks sometimes. So his his first bee sting is famous now. <laughs> Or at least so, he thinks it's famous. I mean, um, he'll tell that to his friends. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so, so you're looking into this, into uh, the contribution of the 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 the, the, the neur neurons on the skin, and and what do you see then? Yeah. So what we found um, when we would apply any sort of allergen on the skin, and this is all kinds of different allergens. Um, we use in our lab, um, we use a model allergen called papain, which is from papayas. Mm -hmm. it, it's, it sounds bizarre, but the reason that we use it um, is that it's a, an al a really good allergen. It's a robust allergen. Okay. Um, it's just um, has very similar functional activity to house dust mite and a lot of other protease allergens. Allergens, okay. Um, and the best part is, is that I can guarantee that um, our animals in the animal facility or the or in our experiments have never seen papaya before. So I know that it's their first exposure to this allergen. So what we found is that when we expose the skin to papain or to this papaya allergen, which is, and then we reproduced it using fungal allergens and dust mite allergens, we found that the mice would immediately really develop this itch response. They would get itchy and they would get itchy for about 20 minutes um, and then that would go away. Um, but it was interesting because this itch response was totally dependent on the activity, the enzymatic activity of the allergen. 
And um, what we found is that we could recapitulate this directly by putting the allergen on sensory neurons in a dish. So for the first time, mm -hmm. even though we couldn't directly activate um, dendritic cells, we could actually take sensory neurons, grow them in a dish, and then see the calcium flux of those um, sensory neurons and know that we were getting direct activation by um, the allergen. So that was a really exciting point for us. Um, and so the big question was, okay, you can sense it, but is this in some way linked to dendritic cell migration or function, okay? And so to get at that, we use models where we actually were able to deplete the sensory neurons. Um, so you can do that by using um, ways to target total sensory neurons or to target subsets of sensory neurons. So we actually were able to target TRPB1 positive sensory neurons. These were the ones that seem to be the ones reacting to our allergen in the dish. Um, and there are a lot of tools actually to target um, these neurons because TRPB1 is the receptor. Um, it's a calcium channel, um, but it's also the receptor for capsaicin. And anybody who paid attention to last year's or two years ago, um, Nobel Prize knows that um, the discovery of some of these channels and capsaicin was um, uh, was awarded the Nobel Prize. But so we were able to use um, these TRPV1-DTR mice. So we were able to get rid of their TRPV1-positive sensory neurons. And then we were able to see, well, what would happen if we exposed those same mice to our allergen? And not only did they not have a sensory response, but they didn't have dendritic cell migration and they didn't have TH2 differentiation. So that started to link it for us. We were also able to use pharmacological methods to um, transiently silence them by using lidocaine derivatives that would just shut off the neurons for a small period of time and again saw the same thing. And what was interesting about this was that it was really specific to the allergic um, immune response. It really had no effect on the response to bacterial or viral um, uh, uh, like PAMPs or to um, them itself. So when I think trip V1, I think pain. Yeah. Capsaicin. Can you take a non-allergen irritant like capsaicin or pick something else and do the same thing is it, is it is it the stimulating of the neuron with a pain sensation which happens to be associated with a subset of allergens because they cause pain as well that then leads to the cascade or have this protease activity yeah, I mean, that's a great question because it always trips everybody up and it trips me up too. Um, so just activating these neurons, so you can activate these neurons just with capsaicin, okay? But that doesn't lead to any of this output, okay? Because it's not just the the activation of the neurons. And what's, what's interesting is that capsaicin activation of neurons very specifically induces this burning pain sensation, but allergen activation of these neurons doesn't induce a burning pain. You can actually quantify the pain versus the itch response um, using like just by videotaping um, mice and seeing how they scratch themselves or wipe themselves, you know? Um, and you can really identify how painful or how itchy something is. But these allergens were really specifically causing an itch response here. Um, so it isn't just the depolarization of the neurons. There seems to be more upstream of that, okay? And to be completely honest with you, I don't even know if trip V1 is necessary for this whole response. It just seems to be present on a subset of neurons that also respond to allergens, right? Um, 
So it's really, it's, it's really interesting. And we don't actually know how these neurons are getting activated by allergens. We don't know if there's a receptor. There probably isn't. There's so many different allergens. It's hard to imagine there's one special G protein coupled receptor for everything. Um, and so we're still trying to figure out how this actually is sensed. But we know that they get activated. We know that they depolarize and cause a sensation of itch, which makes the mouse scratch. But actually scratching and feeling that itch is completely unnecessary for this whole response. So it's not this mechanical stimulus. What we found actually is that these neurons were not only transmitting that sensation, but they were actually releasing neuropeptides locally in the skin. And that's one interesting things that thing that um, sensory neurons can do because they have the um, the signal that goes up to the dorsal root ganglia, but they also have a signal that can go down to the tips of these free nerve endings, and that allows them to release neuropeptides locally. And we saw that it was one specific neuropeptide that seemed to be released by these neurons, and it was something called substance P. Okay. I love these names. They're all like, like, you know, how cryptic. Great. Yeah, they're all cryptic. Exactly. So substance P was released. And then that substance P we found was what made what is what bound to the dendritic cells, activated them to move and migrate to the draining lymph node. All right. So you, you've said substance P, TH2 and immune response. If you told me that and we weren't talking about allergy, I'd ask you about inflammatory bowel disease and specifically ulcerative colitis, which is a TH2 response that is known to be involved substance P related signaling. Have you guys looked into crosstalk in that entire world? Because IBD and UC, you know, they're all, they're autoimmune, but there's air quotes going on that hopefully people on air can hear me say, because it's really some dysbiosis with your microbiome. And, but sub, that whole signaling cascade is heavily implicated, at least the UC version of IBD as a, a process by where there's immune dysregulation. Yeah, there's certainly a ton of immune dysregulation. The, the more type 2 bowel disease, um, at least potential type 2 bowel disease, um, may end up being more irritable bowel syndrome, okay? Um, because we certainly know that um, irritable bowel syndrome can also be associated potentially in some people with foods, okay? There's some really interesting um, work that was done a few years ago, kind of looking at um, local IgE that is specific to foods um, in the bowel. Um, and also there's this whole class of eosinophilic um, gastrointestinal diseases, which definitely seem to be really driven by IL-4, IL-13, and also IL-5, obviously. So we haven't looked too much at the gastrointestinal, um, uh, any of these gastrointestinal diseases. I stay away from the gut. The skin is, I like to see my, uh, my barrier of tissue. <laughs> you can see the intestine. You just need a better camera. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> So this this when you look at this at this kind of responses, you're looking at specifically protease allergens, allergens that, but we know that not every allergen acts like this. So what can you tell us about maybe or, or I don't know. I guess your your lab is mostly focusing on this type of allergic responses. Um, but first, how would this, for example, starting this immune responses? Uh, translate to other sites, for example, you're looking into mostly the skin 
but we also have allergic reactions, I guess, in the mucosa when you have uh, hay fever, things like that. Do you think there's a similar reaction also present here? So I think there's absolutely a similar reaction that happens in the nose, in the airways, in the lung, and that's been shown by others. Um, Sebastian Talbot, um, who uh, did some of the work on his own and also worked with Clifford Wolf, has shown a really important role for neuroimmune interactions in the lung and the airways. Um, but you know, I think the the biggest question that trips people up is, okay, well, skin but fine, maybe that's atopic dermatitis. What about mm -hmm. food allergy, right? Like yeah. that always seems to trip people up. Um, and actually, um, I may be a little controversial here, but I would argue that the skin is the relevant site of sensitization for food allergy, okay? So why, okay? That seems weird, right? Um, so um, I always thought that, you would get sensitized in the place where you would have the reaction. Um, that always made the most sense to me. And when I was training um, as a clinical allergy fellow, I was, you know, training and I was, I was seeing kids and I was seeing babies who the parents would bring them in and they'd say, oh, my kid had um, an allergic reaction to peanut. They had hives all over the place. And, um, and I would always ask, okay, well, how many times have they had peanut before? And the parents would say, oh no, this was their first exposure. And I'm an immunologist. I know that you can't have a reaction on your first exposure, right? Um, and so I was very skeptical all the time. Um, and yet again and again and again, I would test these kids for peanut allergy and they would test positive, okay? Which made me really have to start re-establishing my thought process for how you can potentially get sensitized. If this was the first time that they were ever having an oral exposure to peanut, how are they sensitized already? Um, and so if you actually look at some epidemiologic literature in the allergy world, um, what you'll find is actually pretty clear. So if you have early oral exposure to allergens, it is very protective. It is very tolerogenic, okay? This is stuff from the LEAP trial um, from Gideon Lack's group, and which has uh, progressed on. We know that the early introduction is protective, okay? Which says to me that the oral route, that the gut route of, um, or the gut route of exposure is incredibly safe incredibly tolerogenic um, in terms of foods. However, we also know that there are two things that increase your risk of having a food allergy, okay? One of them is atopic dermatitis, which is clearly a breakdown in the skin barrier function. And the other thing is actually having elevated levels of peanut protein in your household dust. We don't really think a lot about what's in dust, but everything that's around us is in our dust and everything that's in our dust can settle on our skin. And the skin is actually incredibly porous and we can absorb a lot, especially if you have breakdown because you have pre-existing atopic dermatitis or eczema. That's fascinating. What exactly in peanuts is what are the pro proteins in peanuts that are initiating or are known to be responsible for this allergic reaction? Because they're not proteases. They don't have protease activity like right. pollen, right? Right, right, right. So this goes back to the original part of your question, right? Which was, yeah. okay, fine. Protease is great. Um, and, you know, proteases are, 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 
are prevalent in pollens, in fungal allergens, but these are all mainly arrow allergens, right? Um, but food allergens do not have proteases, okay? Um, what do food allergens share in common, okay? Well, um, we know that they are heat stable, right? So they will, are resistant to heat. They're resistant to acid degradation, okay? Those mm -hmm. are two things, right? Because you need to be able to absorb them. Um, none of those are proteases, right? None of those are protease activity. But the third thing that they share in common is that they actually are, they actually are really good at binding small molecules. Okay. So a lot of the food allergy proteins are food storage proteins, lipid transfer proteins, albumins, globulins, all of these things that transfer small molecules. So one direction that we're actively working on in the lab is now that we finally have a cell type that responds directly to allergens is actually looking at some of these small molecules that can hitch a ride with food allergens, okay, to see if they are actually adjuvants, if they have adjuvant activity um, for uh, these allergic proteins. Because all the allergic food proteins share in common is just that they're going to stick around, okay? But it doesn't tell us what might have come along with them to act as that adjuvant. And so that's what we're really interested in um, now that we know that neurons are part of the story. I'm, I'm just thinking about the skin exposure because my wife, I talk about sometimes on here and she doesn't listen. So I get to, um, <laughs> she is never allergic to zucchini, but we garden zucchini. Eventually she got itchy skin and now she can't eat it. She ate zucchini for years. Like that's the, a smoking gun right there. The skin, the skin touching of it made it far worse than uh, any oral tolerance that she could get. Yeah, absolutely. And and so many people do have these skin sensitizations. Very, uh, So many people will be like peeling shrimp or they'll be cracking open lobster and they'll start to get itchy from it far before they start to have oral symptoms. But that leads to the sensitization. Uh, the question is for me, why the heck is the skin so bad? Okay, why is the skin so pro-TH2? And why is the gut so protective? I mean, maybe it's just because the skin is about sensing potential toxins and telling us to stay away from them. And that is kind of part of the toxin hypothesis of allergy that is really starting to gain ground. Um, and I think really kind of helping us understand why we might have allergic immune responses, why this might be so um, hardwired into us, right? In the other direction, when you, for example, have an allergy and you consume something and you get, you get hives, is that also the, 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 the are there also neurons uh, communicating this? Because it's so fast and it's so generalized in the skin that makes me think that maybe there's, they're also contributing to this reaction. Absolutely. A hundred percent. I mean, we, I, of course we don't know this. This is what I think. Okay. Um, but Somebody, I, I do food challenges all the time in my clinic and, you know, somebody will have a, a small bite of something or you'll reach their threshold for activation and it'll hit their stomach. And within 15 minutes, they have hives all over the place. And you cannot tell me that that protein traveled from the stomach through the gut all the way throughout their entire skin um, to cause hives and cause diffuse activation of mast cells and basophils. Okay. Um, and in fact, with food allergies, um, you don't even see stereotypical release of factors that are that are associated with mast cell activation. Okay, so this is telling me that this this concept that there there's a missing link here, right? Um, and 
so I've been really interested in how the nervous system actually might be that um, might be that trigger for a systemic um, for a systemic activator of anaphylaxis, okay, or of this immune response. And it, it makes sense if you want to think about the parasympathetic system as overactive in this whole response, because what do we treat anaphylaxis with? We we use epinephrine, right? Like a clear sympathetic activator, right? Um, which would kind of overcome this parasympathetic response. So that's another thing that I think is really interesting to think about. Now, um, other folks have, have published some work looking at whether or not neurons themselves can bind IgE. I think that there's that they may, um, but I don't even think it, they need to in order for this to be a whole systemic response. I mean, we have entire disease classes of hives that are just caused by neuronal activation, okay? Every mast cell meets a sensory neuron. I mean, these are all well-connected, okay? So I think that there are ways that these systems could communicate. Um, we just don't know the rules just yet. So when I think now, now I'm thinking oral allergy, right? So somewhere skin, neurons. Has anyone looked at the vermilion border of the mouth or the buccal surfaces, like the whole, your face, but particularly your, your, that, that border of your lips where you get that tingly sensation when you eat allergies, there's a ton of neurons in your lips and it's that bad acting skin. And we know those neurons are prone to hold diseases in terms of like cold sores and other stuff as well. So we know there's that mm -hmm that neuronal bridge right there near the surface that'll erupt at any moment. I'm, I, if I'm thinking skin, neuron, and food, because I'm not yeah. eating the strawberry or the peanut on my foot. <laughs> yeah, and I, I think the, I think 100% that there is a lot of innervation there. Obviously, we all know the lips are highly innervated, right? We all know that. Um, uh, but, and there are also tons of mast cells there, okay? So there are like just tons of mast cells. And when a mast cell will get activated, it'll release, it'll release all these enzymatic mediators, right? Those enzymatic mediators will act will directly activate neurons. Because remember, neurons are just, they're, they're very responsive to enzymes. We know that with allergens, but we also know that with endogenous mediators. And then that will activate the neuron. And if that one little neuron, one little like free end of a neuron in one place, when that gets activated, it goes back and then it goes forward again. And you get this whole tree of neuronal free ends, okay, to be activated and dumping out potential mediators um, from neuropeptides to leading to vasodilation, causing all of these symptoms, which vasodilation will cause more immune cells to come in. So they, these all of this works together. So is the mouth the culprit? The lip? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I mean, we certainly know that, um, you know, in babies um, where they get eczemas on the cheeks, um, they smear food all over their face. Like, it, could this be a site, uh, an important site of sensitization if it's ending up on the face, but not actually getting swallowed or ending up in the gut? That we do not know. Man, there's so much to be learned. I have, I have, I'm amazed. This is an amazing field. We need we need so many more people to be studying this because um, it's there's so much low hanging fruit to figure out. And I wonder now that you're 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 clearly explaining here so much involvement of the parasympathetic uh, system. Can we meditate our way out of allergies? It's like, do you think like we could? I mean, this is very exaggerated, but 
could we in a way consciously influence the these responses? So maybe part of it. Okay. Um, so one thing that everybody who has ever had an allergic response knows is that it causes a crazy amount of anxiety. Uh, it causes significant anxiety. And so sometimes people that have allergic responses are, are labeled as having, oh, it's just anxiety. Uh, oh, you're crazy. You know, uh, no, the actual allergic response leads to activation of the amygdala this fear center in the brain, it goes to the hippocampus so that you remember this fear connected with especially foods, but also for goodness sakes, we know it happens with bees. We know it happens with wasps, all of these stinging insects, right? So we know that this is all tied together. So I guess a question is, how much of that anxiety is just a side effect? Is this just a, a side a side effect of the allergic response? Does it actually promote any of the allergic response? Because we know what pathways are going up to the central nervous system that hit our emotional centers, but we don't know how that emotional activation might change our body and might change our body's response. Clearly, it's connected. I mean, clearly some people are able to develop hives just by being anxious, okay? But the question is, is this a circular loop or are these parallel processes? We don't know. Fascinating. Uh, I think this that there's a lot more here that we could dive into, um, but in, in order to not get oversensitized, we have to, <laughs> I always have to come up with a bad segue at some point. <laughs> Um, so before we leave here today, we always like to kind of shift gears and at the end ask kind of a, a non-directly related to work question. Um, and so I guess the one I wanted to hit on was, what is the best piece of advice you've ever been given? It could be professional or not, but some some piece of advice that you've you know you you've put on your mugs and on your wall somewhere. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I think um, the best piece of advice, it's it's helped me more. It's helped me so many times. The best piece of advice I've ever been given um, was um, never quit, make them fire you. <laughs> um, and I, I think that that is the best piece of advice for me. Um, just because I think uh, like maybe a lot of us um, suffer from imposter syndrome at different stages um, of our lives. And we all have, as scientists, as physicians, we all have like crazy long training pathways. And along that, um, along that, that time course of training and along like past all the people that you meet who are in different stages of their training, I think it's totally normal to look around and say, oh my gosh, these people are so much smarter than me. They're so much better than me. They're so much more creative than me. They're so much everything, you know, this is just something that happens. And, um, you know, I, I think when you feel that way, it is very normal to say, well, maybe I would be better off doing somewhere, something else or in a different field or, you know. And each time I have gotten stressed out like that, each time I haven't gotten that first grant or something like that, um, I have thought those um, of those words. Um, and basically for me, it has been a don't give up, continue doing it um, because it's going to come out in the end. Just don't give up, you know, keep on working. Um, because the reason that you're in this, the reason that I'm in this is because it's incredibly fun um, and I really enjoy it. And so just remembering that and keeping my eye on um, 
on my own like target is has been really important. That is really good advice. And as I, I think, as you mentioned, imposter syndrome can be very hard for, for trainees and for people in this field. So if you're, don't assume you need to leave, they will let you know if you're not, you're there because well, you deserve to be there. Yeah. I mean, the thing is, is that like imposter syndrome is hard for trainees. It was hard for me as a trainee, but I'd be lying if I didn't say I still had it. I'm a PI now and I still have it when I look around. Um, you know, it's like that that issue of comparing yourself to other people. You're never comparing yourself to how somebody is. You're comparing yourself to somebody's social media version of themselves. I mean, even, even I on social media, like I put my best foot forward on social media. I don't like talk about all my bad days, right? Um, but I think it's important to just to, to kind of be honest about that. So nobody feels like if they think, if they're unsure of themselves, that all of a sudden that means that they shouldn't be doing this because it's a super fun career and I want more people, I want more women to be doing it. Um, uh, like no offense, Jason. Um, but <laughs> it's, um, I want to get more women at the table. Um, and you know, I think it's, um, right. It's uh, it's quite common for women to be a little bit more um, suffering from imposter syndrome, um, probably because there just aren't as many people that look like them at the table. So I think it's important just to be real about it and just to say we all suffer from it. So just we all, we're all dealing with it. So now let's just move past that and just focus on today. You know, with that high note, uh, I think we we are really really happy that you joined us today. So we're. Um, we're looking forward to the next chapter in your in your lab's research and to see if we can finally figure out how this whole thing works. So how long could it possibly take? A couple of years? Oh, yeah. Just just a few months. I think we're good. <laughs> I think we're good. That brings us to the end of our show. Don't forget to subscribe to our newsletter at www.immunologypodcast.com to get the show notes, including an episode summary and links to all of the interview and roundup papers. You can also reach out to us on Twitter at @immunopodcast or via email at info at immunologypodcast.com with feedback or to suggest guests. See you next time.